Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. That is found on page 991 of your Blue Pew Bibles. In honor of God's word, would you please stand as you are finding 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. On page 991, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we need your spirit to give us understanding, and to give us hearts ready to receive your word. Do this, O Lord, for your namesake and for the good of our souls and our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a big proponent of preaching through whole books of the Bible rather than jumping around Scripture, cherry-picking verses to preach each week. Because if that is all we did, we would never preach on today's passage. There's just way too much controversy and way too many chances to confuse or to offend with a passage like ours. It is so much easier to just skip this. But if a church is committed to a staple diet of preaching that primarily works through whole books of the Bible, then you can't ignore passages like this forever. Eventually, You have to teach on them, and I believe the congregation will be better off for it. Because if all Scripture is God-breathed, if all of it is profitable for us, then we will all be benefited to hear God's Word, even if it's a hard word. And so we have arrived at a passage of Scripture that on face value, I, I know it seems very regressive. It seems to appear to promote an injustice against women. Sex discrimination, as we, we, we talked about last week, is still a very present evil in our society. It's still something we are trying to eradicate. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible seems to be perpetuating these same problems. Women seem to be discriminated against simply due to their gender and being restricted from certain roles that are reserved for men. Some would argue that that is just flat-out sex discrimination. And so here's where I feel an urge to defend the Bible, because I I think that's an unfortunate and and unfounded caricature of Scripture. You know, every time I I get the urge to try to defend the Bible, I'm just reminded of that old Charles Spurgeon quote about how the Bible is like a lion. It doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. So that means I don't need to argue or to debate on behalf of Scripture. I just... I just need to clearly and faithfully preach it 
and just let the word of God take care of itself. And so this morning, that's my goal. I, I, I have no intent on taking on a combative tone. If I address an interpretation or position that's contrary to my own, I hope to present it in the best light possible. And it's inevitable, though, that I will be taking on a position. I will be advocating for a particular interpretation of this passage. Otherwise, otherwise this wouldn't be preaching. If I just stood up here and gave you a survey of all the options, that, that would be called a lecture. That, that's something that you can get in a seminary class or in a Sunday school class. But in a pulpit, I'm obligated to speak out of biblical conviction. But as I said, I'm, I'm not here to argue. I'm not here to defend the scriptures. I'm here to just open up the cage and let the Bible speak for itself. Let the Bible take care of itself. Now, as you just heard this passage read, I'm sure there are a number of questions still racing through your mind. What does the word quiet mean here? Are are women never allowed to talk in church? And and why can't a woman teach or exercise authority over a man? Is, Is Paul saying in verse 14 that it's because women are more gullible than men? And what in the world does it mean that a woman will be saved through childbearing? There are so many difficult questions here. And an overarching question is, is this passage even applicable to us today? Should we be ordering our churches according to the instructions found in this passage, or were they specific only to that time and place in first century Ephesus? Well, first, let me just remind you why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy who is the young pastor of the church in Ephesus. And we've gone back to this verse time and time again. It's in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And there Paul explains specifically why he wrote this letter, why he wrote to Timothy so that he says that you would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. He's writing so that Timothy, as the pastor, ought to know how We ought to behave in the household of God, the church. He wants Timothy to do his job, to rightly order the church, so that that the church could display Jesus to the city of Ephesus, much like a pillar displays the statue of a famous person for all to see and for all to marvel at. That's what the church is, a pillar of the truth of God. Now, in chapter 2, we explain how Paul, in this chapter, is addressing how the church ought to conduct itself when it gathers together for corporate worship. All of this chapter is in the context of of the public gathering of the church. And so in verses 1 to 7, Paul calls for big uh, missional prayers to be prayed when we gather. And then if you keep going on, in verse 8, he addresses the behavior of the men in the church and how we have a tendency as, as men to obscure Jesus, to make it hard for people to see him, especially for the lost to see him, due to our anger, due to our quarrelsomeness. He calls us, therefore, to prayer and to unity as men. And then in verses 9 to 15, Paul turns to the behavior of women in the church now, first in verses 9 to 10, if you notice, he calls for modesty in dress, not letting seductiveness or showiness distract others from Jesus. And then, and then in verses 11 to 15, our passage this morning, Paul explains another way in which a woman can obscure Jesus and, and his gospel. 
And that would be by taking on roles in the church that God has not assigned. Now, I want you to see the context. I want you to understand this is in the context of corporate worship so that we can be clear on the scope of the instructions that we find here. So remember, Paul is teaching us how to order ourselves in the corporate gatherings of the church. So whatever restrictions this passage might teach, that might teach regarding women, let's be clear that we are not expanding this to the workplace or to politics. And so this passage is not restricting women from being managers or CEOs or presidents or prime ministers who, who exercise authority over millions of men. This passage concerns leadership in the household of God, not in society at large. Let's, let's keep the scope according to the way the, the, the context is teaching us. Now, last week I explained that the Bible does teach male leadership in the context of these two realms, of, of the home and the church. And I tried to give for you a theological foundation. I, I tried to offer three pieces of evidence found in the book of Genesis, specifically in chapters 2 and 3, supporting the claim that in the garden, before the fall, before the entrance of sin, God had designed for, for a man to take primary responsibility to lead his own household, as well as to lead the household of God, which Paul calls the church. So just as he expects families to be led by, by godly male husbands, the argument that I'm going to make today is that God designed for churches to be led by godly male elders. Now we're going to get to elders when we get to chapter 3, but for now just know that I'm using the terms elders and pastors interchangeably. They refer to the same office. So what my, my point here is that Paul's teaching in this passage supports the historical practice of restricting the office of elder pastor to godly qualified men. Now I know that claim needs a lot more explanation, so let's get to it. I'm going to break this uh, passage down into four sections. If you want to follow along, just look inside your bulletin, you find an outline, and we're going to be talking about four things. First, what women are called to do in the church. Second, what women are not called to do in the church. Third, why these instructions are still applicable today in the church. And fourth, why women are highly regarded in the church. So let's start by talking about what women are called to do in the church. And to just take the edge off of all of this, let's, let's reserve the question of whether or not this is still applicable today to our third point. Okay, so let's just right now Listen to what Paul has to say about what women do in the church. Um, and, and notice, um, he doesn't address all that they're called to do. He's really just focusing on one thing in particular. He focuses on learning. And so look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, I, I know women learning in the church for us might seem very obvious, there's nothing controversial about that. We have to realize in Paul's day, verse 11 would have been far more controversial than verse 12. Many in his day would have read verse 11 and concluded that Paul must be this radical feminist. Why is that? Because anyone in those days, especially coming from a Jewish background, 
would have been surprised at such a clear affirmation of a woman's right and a woman's responsibility to learn in a group setting along with men. In first century Judaism, women were generally viewed as intellectual inferiors. Their religious education did not concern the rabbis. The rabbis would gather men around them in their schools. And so according to the Jerusalem Talmud, it says it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned then they should be entrusted to a woman. And the Babylonian Talmud says that when worshipers gather in the synagogues, quote, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. Well, to that, the Apostle Paul says, no, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. Let her sit under the preaching of God's word because it speaks to her and it speaks to her heart as much as it does to a man. Let her engage in deep, serious study of the Bible. Let her learn how to exegete a text. Let her learn how to study a passage of Scripture to interpret it, to apply it to her own life and to the lives of others. Paul is willing to challenge the cultural norms whenever it's necessary. Just remember that these same Ephesian women years earlier heard a letter from Paul being read to the church. We know that letter at the as the book of Ephesians, and in it, he directly addresses them in his letter. He treated them as autonomous moral agents responsible to learn and to apply God's word for themselves. And that's that's huge because that's not how they were treated outside of the church. In Greco-Roman society, if you had a word for a wife, you don't talk to her directly. You bring it up to her husband. You don't address women you address their husbands, and the husbands will talk to them. But here, in, in, in Paul's letters, in many places, he will directly address women. He treated women as equally capable of instruction and equally responsible for learning and applying God's word. That's huge. But now, what did Paul mean by a woman learning quietly with all submissiveness? You're probably thinking, well, that still seems a bit chauvinistic. Well, he does take, as a given, so let's keep this in mind, as a given that women should learn alongside men in the church. But here he's concerned with how they learn, the manner and attitude in which they learn under the leadership of their elders and pastors. Now, that word quietly in verse 11 is the same word as to remain quiet in verse 12. It's also the same word for peaceful and quiet lives up there in verse 2. So that tells me that when Paul says quiet or quietly, he doesn't mean silent or silently. Like he wasn't instructing back in there in verse 2 for them to pray to kings and all in high positions so that they may lead a peaceful and silent life, as if the goal is for them to lead a life where they never talk. No, it's a quiet life. A quiet life is synonymous with a peaceful life. And so that tells me that to learn quietly means to learn with a quiet spirit, to learn with a peaceable, orderly attitude versus a contentious and quarrelsome one. Quietness here is not about keeping your mouth shut. It's not saying women cannot talk in the church. Quietness is describing a spirit that respects and supports the leadership of the men that God has appointed to lead his church. 
The same idea is there when it talks about a woman is to learn with all submissiveness. That word submissiveness, I know it has all sorts of negative connotations in our culture, but in the Bible, it's, it's not a byword. Submission is not considered demeaning according to Scripture. Submission to the proper God-given authorities in your life is really what makes for an orderly society, an orderly family, a rightly ordered church. But let's be clear here. Paul is not saying that submissiveness should characterize a woman's attitude towards all men in the church, but only to those men who exercise authority and teach, which I'm saying are the church's elders, pastors. And I think it's also helpful to say, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul would agree, that all men in the church who aren't elders or pastors should still have the same submissive spirit towards their leaders. We're not just singling out women. Church members, as a whole, are called to submit to the leadership of their leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says that. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So before we move on, let's just summarize our answer like this. What are women called to do in the church? They are called to learn God's word. They are called to be robust biblical theologians with an attitude that respects and supports the male elders and pastors of the church. Now having said that, having said that what they are called to do, Paul now turns to what women are not called to do in the church. And again, let's just focus right now on what Paul is saying in his time and place. And I would summarize what he's saying like this. Paul is teaching that women are not called to serve in the office of elder pastor or to preach in the gathered assembly of the church. Not called to serve in the office of elder pastor or to preach in the gathered assembly of the church. Let's read again what it says in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, was Paul just flat out against women teachers? Was he opposed to women teaching in the church? Actually, the biblical evidence would point to no. Paul is actually for women teaching in the church. If you look in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, he instructs older women to teach what is good. He goes on to say, you need to train the young women of your church. And Paul doesn't just have in view the teaching of other women. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's, he's supportive of women praying or prophesying in the gathered assembly of the church. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells church members, men and women, to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly so that they can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And so according to the letters of Paul, there are many kinds of teaching in the church that he thinks women are gifted and called to participate in. But there is one form of teaching in the church to which Paul says he does not permit them to do, and that, as I'm arguing, would be teaching in the gathered assembly of the church, what we would typically call the preaching ministry. 
Remember, again, the context of all these instructions. This is about how we are to behave and how we are to order ourselves in a setting like this, in the corporate worship of the church. And keep in mind, keep in mind, the Bible doesn't permit the vast majority of men in the church to preach in the church. Preaching is a responsibility assigned to men who meet the qualifications of the office of elder pastor. And we'll see that as we get into chapter 3. So in this sense, all women in the church are in the same shoes as all men who are not elders or pastors. They are to joyfully submit to the word of God as it is preached in the church. Now, I I know I said I'll reserve applying this to our own context until the next point, but let me just make one quick aside. We do, here in our church, permit some men to preach who are not elders or pastors, such as the times when we have our ministers up here preaching. But we do it because we see them as elders in training, and we're giving them chances to test and to hone their ability to teach, which is a key qualification for elders. And so that's that's the reason why we still um, support that practice. Okay, now back to the first century context. Besides teaching, Paul says that he does not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, there has been no shortage of ink spilled over the best translation of how to best translate that very Greek word right there, the Greek word authenteo. Uh, Some say authenteo should be translated as exercise authority, um, or others would, would translate it have authority. The commonality in those translations is that authenteo carries either a positive or just a neutral connotation. It's just talking about the possession or the right use of authority. But there are other translations that say assume authority or usurp authority, which would carry a pejorative sense, a, a more negative connotation, which leads some to draw the conclusion that Paul has No issue with women having or exercise authority over men in the church as long as they don't usurp that authority, as long as men are willing to give it to them. Or some would argue that Paul is only against women misusing authority. Uh, He's against them exercising it in a domineering manner. But if that were the case, I I find it strange that Paul would single out women for the abuse of authority because I'm sure he'd be equally against men abusing authority in the church. Now, it's because of these translation difficulties that there's been so much research being made on how to understand the use of authenteo outside of the New Testament, because this is really the only scriptural occurrence. This is only, the only place you're going to find it in the Bible. And I, I would say that out of all this research looking outside in ancient literature, the, the, the most definitive research can be found in the works of Henry Scott Baldwin and Al Walters. Henry Scott Baldwin, Al Walters, and you can find their work in the various editions of the book, Women in the Church. And they've concluded that the word authenteo is not inherently pejorative. It doesn't inherently have a negative sense to it. You really just have to consider the context in order to to know if Paul meant for it to be taken positively or negatively. And so the best clue in our case, looking at the context, is to consider how authenteo is coupled with the word teaching. In the New Testament, whenever you have a couplet like this, both verbs are either positive, they have a positive sense to it, or both are negative. So either 
both teaching and authority carry a negative sense or they're both positive. And so what that means is that if Paul meant usurp authority, if he was talking about he doesn't want women to domineer over men, if he's only against the misuse of authority, then that when he mentions the act of teaching, then there he must be using it pejoratively as well. And so he must therefore be just referring to the teaching of, of, of false doctrine, false teaching. But the problem is, is that in all other instances of the word teaching that are found here in this letter, they all refer to a positive and good activity, unless explicitly coupled with an object like, like teaching different doctrine, like you find in chapter 1, verse 3. But when teaching, the activity, the verb itself is used throughout Paul's uh, letter, it's in a positive, good sense. And so because teaching in corporate worship is a positive, good activity, according to Paul, then authenteo must also be referring to a positive, good activity. It's referring to the good authority of elders and pastors. If you keep reading in in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and in Titus, known together as the pastoral epistles. If you, if you read these three letters together, it becomes clear that elder pastors have two primary functions in the church. They are to lead the church and to teach in it. And then the next thing Paul goes on to deal with in this letter is, in chapter 3, the qualification of elders, or he calls them overseers. And the one qualification unique to elders, not expected of deacons, not expected of of church members is found in chapter 3, verse 2, and that's the ability to teach. And the clearest example uh, in this letter of the dual function of teaching and leading together within one office is found. If you look in chapter 5, verse 17, just, just look there, turn chapter 5, verse 17, and it says there, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so given the context, given the context, the most natural way to read our passage, especially verse 12, is to read Paul as saying, I do not permit a woman to exercise the office of elder whose job it is to rule or to lead and preach and teach. This authority is a good authority for the good of the church, but it is not an authority that God calls a woman to exercise in the church. So let's summarize what we're saying here. Remember, Paul is all for women learning the Bible. He's all for women teaching and serving in a multitude of settings. The one restriction is that women are not to function as elder pastors who teach in the gathered assembly of the church. Okay, all right, let's breathe easy. Up to this point, we've just been talking about what Paul has been saying to his audience. But now, of course, comes the big question. Does all of this still apply today? And I would answer yes. This is our third point here. Let's talk about why these instructions are still applicable in the church. And I'll start by addressing the various reasons given for why these instructions are not binding upon us today. Some would say the reason is because Paul was only expressing a personal preference. Uh, They would point to verse 8 
in our chapter and how this whole section begins with Paul expressing his desire. It's just his desire. But we just have to remember he is speaking out of the authority of an apostle. And in verse 12, when he does use the language of permission, it's clear that he's expressing more than just a personal wish or personal preference. Now, I know others would limit the scope of these instructions by suggesting that Paul is really only speaking to wives, to women here who are married, and only applying it in relation to their husbands. But remember, again, the context of chapter 2, and that's the church's public worship. And so that means a plain reading would assume that Paul is still speaking about the church and that he hasn't suddenly shifted his attention to marriage. Another argument is that Paul was speaking these instructions only to the church of Ephesus due to the outside influence of female false teachers who had crept into this church. And so from this point of view, everything that Paul writes in this letter was to a specific church with a specific problem in view. But to that argument, I would just keep going back to chapter 3, verse 15, as we've already seen, and how Paul has the household of God in view. He has the church at large in view, and not just the Ephesian church. You know, I think most people would assume that the qualifications that he goes on to list out in chapter 3 are not just qualifications for Ephesian elders, but for elders in all churches, in all times and places. And so it would be rather arbitrary to limit verses in chapter 2 to first century Ephesus and then to expand it universally in the next chapter. And to the suggestion that there were female false teachers influencing the church, the thing is is that there's really no evidence in the Bible or outside of the Bible that women were teaching false doctrine in Ephesus. And even if it were true, if only some women were teaching false doctrine, why would Paul prohibit all women from teaching in the church? And so I think I think, friends, the the best way to understand why these instructions are applicable today is really to look at verse 13. Verse 13 in our text is going to help us. Last week, we explained how that connecting word there, it starts off with the word for. That connecting word tells us Paul's rationale, his theological foundation for his instructions for women in the church. So let me read verses 13 to 14 again. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now notice that Paul is not basing his rationale on any culturally bound reason or any culturally specific context, but rather he grounds his argument on God's good design in the creation order before sin entered into the world. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. Now as I explained last week, Adam's firstness in creation communicates his primary responsibility to lead his household. You know, God could have created Adam and Eve at the exact same time, and that would have communicated the, the, the biblical teaching about male-female equality, but he didn't do that. And what does that communicate? Well, it definitely does not communicate that men are superior to women. I know according to our culture, being first means being the best, but according to the scriptures, being first just means that you're given a responsibility that's not given to the second. But, but, uh, but now we did say 
So we said before that Genesis clearly affirms the theological principle of male-female equality, and yet we also said it teaches the principle of male leadership. And as we argued last week, God created men and women equal in worth, yet different in role. Equal in worth, yet different in role. Now, if you remember in his previous letter to them, in Ephesians, Paul already applied these two principles to marriage. And there, in Ephesians chapter 5, he calls for husbands to lead their households. And, and, and he grounds that call in Genesis 2. He quotes Genesis 2 in Ephesians 5. And so it makes sense that here, in this, if you think about it, this is a follow-up letter written to the exact same church, Paul, it makes sense that he would root his design for the household of God in the same way um, in that he would say that, uh, in the same way that, that he would argue that individual households are to be led by godly men. And so he's rooting it in Genesis. Now, the second rationale really just flows out of the first. The second rationale for these instructions is he's arguing that the neglect of God's good design and order is really what led to the damage and ruin of sin in our world. Look at what he says in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now let's just be clear. This does not mean women are more gullible than men and therefore they can't be trusted to teach. I think that is a very poor interpretation of this verse. Paul is not saying women are more deceivable. What he's saying is that the disharmony between men and women is the result when God's good design is attacked and reversed. You see, when the devil attacked, he knew what he was doing. Notice how when he attacked in Genesis 3, he tried to reverse the gender roles between men and women. He approached Eve in order to deceive her, not just about what God said about the tree, but to deceive her into leading her husband Adam into sin. In God's good design, humanity was given dominion over the animals, but now in Genesis 3, an animal, a serpent, is leading humanity in sin. In God's good design, Adam was given leadership over Eve, but now Eve is leading Adam into sin. The roles were reversed. The devil knew exactly where to strike. Adam should have taken leadership. Adam should have protected his household by leading with the truth, leading and teaching God's word. But instead, he just stood there and he watched the deception of his wife take place before his very eyes. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam saw and heard the whole thing, and he did nothing. He abdicated his leadership. By alluding to this tragic moment in human history, Paul is reminding the church that this is what happens when God's good design between men and women is not observed. 
it leads to pain, it leads to disorder. And this is Paul's rationale for why men should take primary responsibility to teach God's word and exercise authority to function as elder pastors in the church. That's why these instructions are universal and they're applicable in every time and place. And that would include our time, our place, this church. Fidelity to Scripture leads us as a church to affirm and to apply the dual principles of male-female equality and male leadership in our context. And we do that. We do that as a church by calling godly qualified men to serve as our elders and pastors, while at the same time supporting and encouraging women to teach and lead in our church in various capacities. Church, it is my honor, it has been my honor for these many years to serve alongside strong, capable, godly women in our church. I'm, I'm thinking, I am thinking of specific people. As, 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 I, was, I, was, I was pondering this this week, I am thinking of recent English side deaconesses, strong, capable women like Karen Ho, Amy Tui, Tui Kao, and Yen Kong. I'm thinking of, of capable English side women who have given so much leadership to our children, nursery, and youth ministries, especially during those years when we didn't have staff. I'm thinking of Ellie Tao, Teresa Leong, Teresa Tarn, Winnie Poon, and Myra Yang. I'm thinking of women ministry leaders, Catherine Joe, Allison Wu, Alice Ho, and also Ellie and Teresa. I'm thinking of leaders of our ministries like English Buddy. Chi-Chi Ao, Danielle Wang, Angela Sung, leaders of MOLO, leaders of PO, Aya Huang, Chelsea Jung, and I'm thinking of recent college fellowship presidents, our CCF presidents, like Catherine Miller, Suzanne Wen, Melissa Cock. And I'm thankful for gifted female teachers like, like Alice Ho, who, who are utilizing their gifts in teaching in Sunday school. You can go to her class after this. And I haven't even mentioned all the many female small group leaders in our church. There's just way too many for me to list them all out here. Suffice it to say, we as a church are strong supporters of strong women in leadership. Considering all the ministry that is available to women in the church, not being able to be an elder or pastor in a church is a very small restriction. But, you know, I understand if you still have a hard time accepting that very small restriction. But all I can do is commend to you the scriptures. And I hope God helps you see the goodness of his created order. He knows that men and women will flourish, will best flourish in ministry, and that Jesus will be most clearly displayed in the church when godly, qualified men take primary responsibility to teach and exercise authority as elder pastors in the church. Now, I don't want to end just focused on one restriction for women in the church, but rather I'd like to end this message on our highest regard for women in the church, because that's exactly what Paul does to end this section in verse 15. Look there with me. Verse 15, he says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I know verse 15 is, is quite challenging to interpret in and of itself. It might offend you if you weren't offended already. Um, you know, she's going to be saved through childbearing? What in the world is Paul teaching here? Well, let's just say very, very quickly what we know Paul wasn't teaching. He wasn't teaching that a woman can be saved by her own merit, her own good works, in this case, having a baby. That would be completely contradictory to the whole tenor of Paul's gospel that he preaches about salvation being by grace through faith. So we're not teaching, teaching works righteousness through having a baby. And though some have tried to interpret this uh, verse to mean being kept safe through childbirth, that is, through labor, we know from experience that godly women can still die in labor, in childbirth. And so we also know that Paul's usage of the word for saved here almost always refers in his letters not to uh, deliverance from physical danger, but deliverance from spiritual danger, deliverance from sin. And so I think a better interpretation is to see Paul as referring not to childbirth in general, but to the childbirth in particular, to the birth of Christ. Because in the Greek, there's actually the definite article there, the definite article the before the word for childbearing. And so think about this. In verse 14, Paul mentions Eve, who she was the one who bore sin into the world. So in verse 15, that she there, that female singular pronoun, is likely referring to Eve and to all women for whom she stands as a representative. Paul is saying that all women and men will experience salvation through the childbirth. The curse of sin will be reversed through the birth of the offspring promised to Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Provided that these believing women continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so even though Scripture has a very small restriction for women in the church, and even if you still have a hard time accepting that, let's just end by remembering how much we owe to a woman. If Mary, the second Eve, had not given birth to the promised one, there would be no salvation for any of us. The high regard we have for women in the church stems from the highest regard we have for the one woman who bore our Savior into the world. No man could have done it. Only a woman. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take a difficult passage like this and you will help us to understand your heart, your intent for us individually, for us corporately as a church. Do so, Lord, for your glory, our good. In Jesus' name, amen.